Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Juliet Jakes. Hello Juliet. Hi. Juliet's here to talk about her excellent book Variations, a collection of short stories. Juliet Jakes is a writer and filmmaker based in London. She's the author of Rainer Heppenstahl, A Critical Study, and Trans, A Memoir, which is really excellent. Her landmark column on gender reassignment appeared in The Guardian entitled A Transgender Journey, and she has written for London Review of Books, Granta, Sight and Sound, Freeze, Art Review, New York Times, and many more. Juliet was included on the Independent on Sunday pink list of influential LGBT, LGBT people in 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2015. And presumably also should have been for every year since then, but um, in my view. But welcome to the show, Juliet. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm not sure the Independent on Sunday do that list anymore. I think they might is, have stopped in 2015. Yeah, is there even an Independent on Sunday anymore? I'm, yeah, I'm not even sure, and I don't <laughs> want to try and check their website. No, that's you, not. You can't, you can't use the Independent's website. It's, it's impossible. That's true. <laughs> it's horrendous. And also, any Sunday newspaper is bound to just be transphobic, it seems, at the moment. So I mean, yeah, well, to be fair to the Indie, they're the one, the one publication I've never really noticed it with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I've not seen it in the FT either, but instead of us creating like a an okay list of newspapers <laughs> to read, the point of this show <laughs> is to get Juliet to talk about um, her book variations, and also Juliet's going to very kindly do a reading for us. I'm going to follow along. It's like I've not been read a story uh, for a long time like this, although I have heard Juliet do readings before, and they're always amazing. Um Last time, actually, I heard you do a reading. You were kind of upstaged by Jeremy Corbyn. And <laughs> he, I was listening intently, and everyone was kind of just off going to see Jeremy. And it, it was that day where he had his guns out, and everyone was getting a bit swoony over him. Like, <laughs> this is all very nice, but can you just wait until Juliet's finished her story? <laughs> I um, didn't mind. I was quite happy to be upstaged by... Uh... By your absolute boy. So yes, um... that's true. I mean, I was actually a bit grumpy about it. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, but yeah, I mean, he was uh, looking fine, and he is the absolute boy. And yeah, um, and then he came on, came on my podcast. Um, so so he right. can upstage me all he wants. Fine. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's uh, let's give a bit of uh, uh, an overview yeah. of what what variations is. It's one of the very few things I've written over the last few years to not reference uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, does not <laughs> appear. Anywhere in the pages of this book, um, maybe the next one, but um, variations. So this is some, yeah, this is something a bit new, I think, isn't it? That often, there are there are increasing number of books um, about trans folk coming out of the trans experience. Um, but this is something doing something a bit different and new, and I think is um, from what I've read so far, it's just super interesting. It's a collection of short stories, uh, kind of tracing the history of uh, being trans uh, in the UK. I guess is it's just the UK, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so tell us a bit more about your motivations for doing short stories. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, you say this is new and different and feels kind of off the moment because mm. I actually first had the idea of writing a volume of short stories called Variations, this title has mm. always been in my mind, that would be about sort of a range of different trans and non-binary people yeah. in, I mean, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but certainly by the mid-2000s. Yeah. I certainly yeah, my first go at writing these stories was in about 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea just never went away. Obviously, I one reason why it didn't really work at that time was because I didn't have 
the life experience to mm. to write this kind of project with all these different characters and, and narratives and histories. I didn't have the writing ability either, actually, at that point. I wasn't mm. good enough a writer to make this work mm-hmm. uh, back then. Um, but also there wasn't really the sort of theoretical and creative infrastructure from other sort of trans and non-binary people that I mm. really needed. You know, there wasn't the historical groundwork mm-hmm. or the kind of enough of the groundwork in terms of what trans fiction writing and creative writing should look mm. like. Um, so it didn't really work for a variety of reasons. Uh, and then obviously I, you know, I decided that actually what was needed at that point in the sort of late 2000s wasn't really a sort of fairly underground set of yeah. short stories you know, mm. written by, you know, somebody writing in a fairly experimental tradition. Mm. It was some sort of intervention into mainstream media coverage of trans issues. So I ended up obviously doing the Guardian series mm-hmm. uh, that you mentioned instead, and then Trans and Memoir, which grew out of that, mm. you know, in response to the dominance of the discourse around trans issues by um, transphobic um, liberal and conservative mm-hmm. uh, opinion writers, mostly were the people kind of setting the terms, um, and that was an attempt to to reset the terms on which this discussion was taking place. And it worked for a while. I think it worked mm. for a couple of years until they basically doubled down. You know, just mm. said, no, "No, we are going to just like carpet bomb you out of the discourse, basically." Mm. Um, and it's very notable. You know, we talked a little bit about the media uh, earlier. Mm. And it's very notable that, you know, you see very, very few articles about trans subjects written by a trans person now, mm-hmm. and far, far fewer than you would have seen seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Um, so Variations was always going to be my next project after the memoir. I always wanted to write one more trans mm. book. Uh, and off the back of doing the memoir, I managed to get PhD funding to do a creative and critical writing PhD at the University of Sussex, oh. uh, which is what this book grew out of. So mm. there are 11 stories in this book, and I wrote eight of them there mm. um and they go back to the victorian period first story set in 1846 most recent one is set in 2014 so kind of at the point where this backlash against trans visibility is really growing in the media mm. and indeed that story deals with that um, but really the idea was to you know move the dialogue on from memoir and theory onto fiction see if fiction could be useful for british trans writers because there's very very little of it yeah. barely any published fiction about British trans people, by British trans people, um, mm. even now, but let alone when I was conceiving this in sort of 2013, 14. Um, and it uses a range of different forms, uh, which try to be appropriate to the time. So, for example, the 1990s story is a film script reflecting the fact there were a lot of films about trans people in the 90s. 2010 story is a set of blog posts that sort of interact with Twitter in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, 1920 story is an academic paper dealing with sexology of time um and so on mm-hmm. um so that's that was the kind of idea behind variations and yeah the idea was to was to try and do something again kind of affirmative and that wasn't just responding mm-hmm. directly to terms being set by by people who hate us yeah i guess it's kind of coming from a different angle i suppose isn't it as well it's just to say well 
my thought when when I was reading the stories that I did was kind of thinking about a tool that we use in sex education, which is to have like a distanced approach where we where we create something which is fictional or create something wherein we have like a third person in the room rather than it being about the people in the room, and how actually that might give people a bit of breathing space to kind of reconsider it in some way and to kind of to, to think about where they are situated in that story too and how they might respond to it. I thought that was I think that's the thing that kind of makes it feel quite unique at this moment um although yeah they you know and it, it is it is fiction which uh you wouldn't think is should be unique or um the, you know a collection of short stories shouldn't be as radical um shouldn't have to be as radical but there is the potential for this to be quite radical i think hopefully if um enough people read it and engage with it i guess the other thing just before we get into the story as well is that whenever we hear about the, the there is seemingly constant transphobia from the conservative and liberal press, which we'll talk about after the reading. But it, it is just a reminder, dear listener, that most people are not transphobic. Uh, the majority of people are actually pro-trans rights. Um, and so it, it's it's another one of these things where the press are portraying like the great British public as, as being something that they're entirely not and having such a low opinion of people. Um, so it's kind of in that context too that I think a lot of people will just pick this this up and think, well, yeah, it's just really interesting, and to co- to kind of go beyond the, the the sterile and super problematic debates of entirely around trans people's existence and rights to exist, which seems like a massive dead end. So it's called Variations. It's out. It came out last week. You should all buy it. So that's the first plug. We'll keep continuing to plug it throughout the show. And then, you know, we'll get it into their heads. Apparently you need to see or hear something four times and then people buy it, Julia. This is something I found out. So we'll go for four plugs. (laughs) Variations. Are you keeping a tally? Um... Yeah, I think we're up to three already. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) So we're going to do, you're going to do a reading. Uh, This is the one set in the 1950s. Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to read uh, from a story called Dancing with the Devil. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is written as a chapter from an invented memoir. Uh, Like most of the stories, it has a kind of preamble as if it's being presented by some sort of trans archive, Mm. which kind of explains the story and puts it in context. So at the beginning, there's an explanation of the central character. Laura Miller was born in Coventry in 1927 and that... This is an extract from a memoir of hers called Dancing with the Devil, uh, which picks up on her story on her return to the UK after three years in New York, where she's been working as a cabaret performer, dancer and waitress at a club called Club Club 82, which is operated by the Mafia at a time when gay bars and female impersonation were illegal in the US. Uh, So it says she moved to London in 1955 and eventually began a new career as a model. After the events outlined below, she withdrew from public life Little has been heard from her since she published this memoir in 1970. Mm-hmm. So the story uh, is obviously written in Laura's voice, and I'm just going to begin it now. Mm-hmm. Click, click, click. I'd become used to the cameras, and in a way, I liked the fact that none of the photographers gave a sailor's cuss about me beyond how I looked. I'd had enough of telling people who I was, what I thought, and how I felt, only for them to turn around and insist that I was wrong. Now, Once I'd gone through the daily rigmarole of making myself look presentable, my exchanges were simple. I made the face they wanted, they captured it on film. Occasionally, I had to remind myself not to blink on the flash, but that was as hard as it got. Click, click, click. I knew it could become harder at any moment, 
someone just had to go to the press. My brother could be rat enough, I often thought, snitching on me to the papers like he always did to my parents. By this point, though, I figured that if he hadn't done it, he probably wouldn't. If he was waiting for my stock to rise further, he was in for a disappointment. The public might not have known my secret, but the industry did. I'd auditioned enough of Britain's actors, so to speak, for word to get around, and I couldn't help wondering if that was the reason why other people moved rapidly from non-speaking extra parts to speaking ones to supporting roles when I was never allowed a word on film. After I'd done all that work on my voice, too. The Wolfenden report hadn't landed yet, and if those actors were wondering about whether sleeping with me made them a pansy, then they were probably worried that it could land them in jail. Perhaps only a few of them boasted about a night in my bed, then, but how could I know? Something was holding me back, and it seemed more likely that than anything else. I noticed more than one of my conquistadors bravely avoiding my glance at the Dance with the Devil rap party. One man, though, caught my eye. At first, he looked just like any other suit at these things. The main difference was the way he looked at me, a casual smile that said he was more curious about my soul than my sex. His only distinguishing feature was that he was shorter than all the men and most of the women, not that there were many, and a good six inches shorter than me. It looked like he'd come alone, and he was one of the few people who didn't seem unwilling or unable to approach me. As soon as he said, hello, I'm Frank, I knew something was up. He sounded like his voice never broke, and for a split second, I envied him more than I'd ever envied anyone, before I thought what a nightmare that must have been during his school days. Anyhow, he wasn't unattractive, smooth-skinned, slick hair, like a softer Cary Grant, so I held my tongue. Then I wondered, did he know about me? Is he like me? We got talking, and he told me he was setting up a London office for his father's tea business because his family were thinking of leaving India since independence and the partition, because of what he described as Nehru's creeping Bolshevism. He had a calm, gentle manner that put me at ease, and was quite upfront when I asked what brought him to the party. His family were philanthropists, he said, passionate about culture, often putting money into highbrow films like this one. Then... He became more interested in me, asking questions that might seem obvious, but hardly any man ever bothered to pose. How did I get into the film industry or modelling? Given how charming and beautifully spoken I apparently was, why wasn't I better known? Did I want to be? What were my hopes, ambitions and dreams? We chatted all evening, helped by the copious free booze. All that champagne, I joked, made me feel like Princess Margaret. Frank laughed, and if what he'd already told me didn't make it clear why my remark made him a bit self-conscious, what I saw next did. When the party ended, I offered to take him to my bedsit in Soho, figuring that we'd have more fun than I did on my quiet nights in with fumbling, awkward men. Politely, he suggested his place might be a bit more comfortable, and I wasn't going to argue. It's incredible, really, how near Soho is to Mayfair, and yet. After a short taxi ride, which he covered, aware that being an occasional model and even more occasional film extra wasn't even as glamorous as it looked, we reached the penthouse flat that was the Bolton Taylor Company's main London residence. 
First, he showed me the roof terrace, pointing out Marble Arch and Hyde Park, saying we couldn't see Buckingham Palace from here, but talking about Queen Liz with such affection that I wondered if they were friends. Then he apologised for the mess inside the apartment, as if mine didn't resemble the aftermath of the Blitz. He had contracts and letters, liberal pamphlets and film magazines, suits in the wardrobe and underwear on the floor, mainly gents but a few ladies, which made me wonder if I was going to become his mistress. After a long chat, and plenty more to drink, he took my hand, stroking it. He ran the tips of his fingers up to mine, noticing the polish, and running his thumb over my index fingernail. He looked at me and smiled. Sensing his hesitation, I took a chance and drew him to my lips. Suddenly liberated, he started kissing me, and I genuinely thought, hoped, that he would never stop. Then he stroked his hand down my face and onto my neck, gently caressing it until he noticed my Adam's apple. I thought you knew, I said. I thought you knew, he replied with a strange half-smile. Knew what? He stood, unbuttoned his shirt and took off his belt. I don't know what the word for it is, but I'm seeing a doctor on Harley Street. He let his trousers drop. If only we could have swapped bodies, eh? I put my arm around his shoulders and kissed him. I think we both knew that there were many more revelations to come, but they could wait. After Dance with the Devil, a director offered me a small speaking role. I was only going to be in one scene, and the film didn't look amazing. A screwball comedy called All Over the Shop about a maverick greengrocer. But it was a big step up from walking on, shooting a sultry glance at the man behind the camera and walking off again. Maybe you should get an agent, Frank joked at a celebratory meal, which, once again, was his treat. Then there was a pregnant pause. You arranged this? He looked at me knowingly. Oh, darling, I said, you didn't have to do that. I didn't go out of my way, just put in a word for you over dinner. The casting agent is friends of my brother. I thought your family only got involved with highbrow films, I replied. You'll make it classier, he insisted and raised his glass. The rest of the night was a bit of a blur. But as I woke up in Mayfair and in Frank's arms the next morning, I thought about how I'd finally landed on my feet. No more waiting on boorish Americans who wanted to be on the side but blew their tops if I had dared suggest being anything more. No more dancing for punters who cheered and leered while I was on stage but treated me like dirt when I was off it. No more competing with the girls to be these mobsters' favourites when we should have been looking after each other. And best of all, no more worries about the New York Mafia's protection racket, and no more feeling like I'd be cast out onto the street if I didn't give in to their every whim. Now, I had Frank. I know every woman says her man is different, but mine really was. Clearly, even this fleeting moment of happiness, attached to a handful of lines and a stupid farce, meant I was getting too far out of my box. I was back in Soho, trying to make my hovel look like a home, or at least inhabitable, when I got a phone call. Laura, it's me. Frank sounded flustered, not his usual self. They're on to us. Wait, hold on, I replied. Who's they? The Daily Chronicle. 
Oh, Christ, I said, who told them? I don't know, he replied. How did you hear about it? I asked, momentarily worried that I'd been wrong about Frank and that, like everyone else, he didn't have my interests at heart after all. My brother just called me, Frank said. He used to be a journalist. He told them? No, said Frank. He mentioned you to a friend who'd heard about it and tipped him off. Does his friend know who the reporter is? No, he tried to find out, but no one would tell him. Jesus wept. Any idea what they're planning? No, Frank replied. I think they've just heard a rumour for now. Have you noticed anyone or anything strange around you lately? I hesitated. Apart from me, of course, he laughed. His joke snapped me out of a dark train of thought. If we were both going to be exposed, then I could lose all my film work, probably my modelling as well. And I didn't fancy the idea of spending my life in the papers or on the television letting the vultures pick at my guts like Christine Jorgensen, if anyone would even listen. At best, it would be back to Club 82 and the mob. At worst, the game. Somewhere between the two laid the end of Blackpool Pier. None of them appealed. As for Frank, he had the emotional support of his family, although they weren't exactly thrilled about the whole thing, but he worried they'd take his name off the business, which could mean losing his income entirely. However this might pan out, it didn't look good. My next thought was to wonder who might have sold us out, and whether I'd go to the trouble of stringing him up from the nearest lamppost or simply wring his neck. Perhaps it was one of the furtive blokes at the rat party, or maybe the Chronicle had sent some private dick along because they already knew and wanted to find out more. Seeing that I was trying to form a relationship for them to destroy was an added bonus. And people said the way I lived was disgusting. If you can't beat them, join them, said Frank over an expensive consolatory dinner. How can we join them, I asked. Well, they've been snooping on you, right? Following you around, trying to find people who know you, going through your bins. I didn't know if anyone had done this, but I'd put nothing past these people, so I just nodded. Two can play that game, said Frank. I'm going to hire someone. A private investigator that our firm have used. Mates rates. He knows about me and he's fine with it, so he won't have any problems with you. He paused, smiling as I raised an apprehensive eyebrow. Mad as it sounds, some of these detectives are actually decent chaps. What good will it do, I asked. Well, he said, we find out who this reporter is and what he's got. Then we can work out how to stop him. First, we'll try to reason with him. Unlikely, so if that doesn't work, and he's not scared off by the fact that unlike most of the people they go for, we can actually answer back, then we threaten to take him to court. Won't they have better lawyers? Maybe, but do they really need this story that much? It's not like we're Prince Rainier and Grace Kelly or anything. No, I suppose not. I thought for a moment. Perhaps I looked slightly peeved, justifiably in my opinion, if not his, at Frank suggesting I wasn't as important as Princess Grace of Monaco. He looked into my eyes, smiled and took my hand. What if they went budge, I asked him. Would we still be able to sell them my story as an exclusive? That'd give me a bit of control, at least. And risk all your work? It might be all right, I replied, and it sounds like it's going to happen anyway. I think we can stop it, Frank insisted. It's worth a pop. 
Frank's mate was called Derek, an affable fellow who played rugby, went to the opera and listened to the BBC Third programme. He was worlds apart from the boys I grew up with in Coventry or the girls I danced with in New York. I ended up spending a lot of time with him as he constantly had to be at my side to look out for anyone shifty enough to be a reporter. It seemed pointless. They had their story and it was just a matter of time before they confirmed it. However much he looked after me, promising that I could stay at his place if I couldn't meet the rent on my shabby bedsit and telling his film contacts to keep looking for work for me, I couldn't help thinking that Frank was more worried about his reputation than mine, and I thought that the best outcome now might be a preposterous tabloid expose of my Red Hoss affair with a private detective, who really was one of the most sexist people I've ever met. So there I was, going everywhere, with this man who was trying not to be seen with me, in a hunt for another man who was trying not to be seen looking for me. Meanwhile, Frank and I kept going out on the town, a mass ball here, a private members club there, avoiding the film world, apart from the shoots for all over the shop, which, it was becoming apparent, was not going to be on the level of kind hearts and coronets, limiting its ambitions to ripping off Norman Wisdom's trouble in store, because it was the obvious place to find us. After a long night that began in the theatre to see if all the trap about the map to see if all the fuss about the mouse trap was warranted, and ended in a taxi from a dance hall in Chelsea where I taught him how to take the lead in the Charleston, we got back to Frank's flat to find a sealed envelope with no name in his letterbox. He opened it right away. I've seen your man in the shadows trying to kill our stories. You should tell him to get a less jazzy car. Fifty pounds will keep your name out of the papers. Meet me in Soho on Tuesday at 10pm, location TBC. Well, at least we know why Derek was so cheap, I sighed, as I watched Frank's hands tremble. Should we go to the police? Who knows what they'll do, Frank replied. They might even be in on it. And even if they're not, do you think they're going to side with the likes of us? I don't expect much, I replied. But when is this clear cut? They wouldn't be so clear-cut if they didn't think they'd get away with it, said Frank. You're not going to pay them. I'll show it to my lawyer and see what he suggests. Oh God, Laura, I'm so sorry you're getting caught up in all of this. They'd have gone after me anyway, I replied, and I would have been alone. He squeezed my hand and we took the lift to his flat, but neither of us slept a wink. At dawn, when we'd, been given, when we'd given up on getting any rest, Frank went back downstairs. Whoever it was who was blackmailing us had left another card. It suggested an address in Soho, a few doors from my bedsit. Coincidence or not, I never knew. Frank's lawyer said there wasn't much he could do with just these typewritten cards for evidence, beyond going to the police. The cops probably would take it seriously, he thought, and may well turn up at the specified time and place and arrest the blackmailer. But that still left us at the risk of being investigated for gross indecency or whatever the old bill fancied and the newspapers running a piece about us out of spite. Frank looked through his accounts. He could just about afford the ransom without having to ask his father for support, but it would make things tough until the London branch was up and running. No more ballrooms, and no more fine dining. I insisted that Frank did not go to meet whoever it was, and for the first time since I fled New York, I wished I was still in touch with some of the heavies. Derek sent a couple of his more intimidating friends. Neither he nor Frank ever told me exactly who they were or who they met, but they got a result. 
an agreement was reached whereby our extortionist representative could either drop his demand or spend his £50 on a taxi home from outer London and a set of new teeth. Wisely, he chose the former, but we still didn't know if the bomb would drop. Now more than ever, said Frank, it might be a good idea to get out of the city, until, at least until the heat was off, and I agreed. But where could we go? <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it. To, hear, to read the rest of that story, it's by Variations by Juliet Jakes. <laughs> Uh, that's so cool. Um, so this is the thing that we get from fiction as well, which is kind of, which, when the story is about transphobia and not trans people, you don't get anything about just, we, we are robbed of hearing about intimacy and desire and pleasure and joy. And so this is why um, fiction can just be so, can, can give us all of that and can give us that sense of um, these are people's lives we're talking about, just people trying to have the same kinds of intimacy and desire that m many of us are trying to have. Um, so, yeah, what a great story. Um, and so this kind of the this kind of affirmative way of talking about uh, the trans experience rather than pandering to the the transphobia that we see in the story the the I mean we picked this one because the kind of the the Daily Chronicle here is is well the Daily Chronicle is basically pretty much most mainstream newspapers at the moment tr um, having this kind of feeling like they have an entitlement to to regulate trans people's lives in a way that it's I find completely immoral. Um, so this is still kind of going on, but these short stories are this kind of a more affirmative way of, of talking about this, and it doesn't pander to, uh, yeah, the mainstream press treatment of trans folk. Was that something that was really conscious when you were, when you were setting about this project? Was this something that, uh, was this kind of like praxis for you, a, a way of, or was it just something else? Yeah, it was. And I mean, increasingly so as the project went on. Uh, I mean, this story was written in, I think, 2017. Mm. There's kind of a point where the liberal and conservative media were reaching a crescendo, but we weren't quite at the mm. fever pitch in sort of late 2018 around the Gender Recognition Act reforms. Mm. Uh, but the groundwork was being, being very much laid and had been laid quite a lot. Mm. Um, but I mean, I think even I've written these stories in 2005, I mm. would have written about the press like outing yeah. transsexual people in the in the period in the way and you know, so people like april ashley in her memoir caroline cossie and hers talk about being outed by the press and this kind of intrusion and the way that you know the press really made people at this point sort of hate transsexual people in particular mm -hmm. and it's quite interesting if you look back at the 1930s coverage of the earliest sort of trans men in britain the coverage is often quite kind of scientific, quite humanistic, quite mm. calm, mm. and just, you know, almost you know, it's kind of inquisitive saying, what are these processes surgically? How do they work? Mm. But they're, they're not particularly intrusive, and, you know, they're not falling over themselves to dead name people or humiliate them or mm. damage them in the way that, you know, the Chronicle is here. And mm. was, that was very much a kind of post-war phenomenon, both in Britain and the, the US. Mm. Uh, but yeah, of course, the parallels with the present, with the things that Transmedia Watch talks about in the Leveson Inquiry in 2011-2012 mm. uh, and what's been happening in particularly the quote-unquote respectable press. Mm. 
uh, in the second half of the 2010s and into the 2020s in particular were, were very much on my mind. And I mean, I, you know, because like I said, I always wanted to write a set of sort of stories with a range of trans characters. Mm. And I think if I'd written this at a time when the media were not behaving so badly, maybe if that kind of line of progress in the early 2010s had continued upwards, mm. I might have written a very different set of stories, maybe slightly more textually experimental, um, but they, they wouldn't have looked looked like this sort of stories does because many of these stories are about the media in some ways. The media definitely yeah. comes into the two Victorian stories. Mm-hmm. It's crucial to the 1930s story, mm-hmm. uh, which features a lot of like national and local uh, press coverage of a sort of proto-trans man. Obviously, it's very central to this story. Um, it's the media. Television is a big part of the 1960s story and comes into the 1970s story. Um, the 90s story is about film um, and the 2010 story kind of directly takes on this transphobic backlash in the media mm. um, so the media are are a recurring theme uh, throughout throughout the book and I think that does speak to the specific point it was written yeah I mean I kind of just wonder who it is that they what it is that they're trying to achieve and what it is that they what it who it is that they think is interested in their stories that I guess that it, but I guess it is just to do with power, isn't it? And, um, and, uh, controlling the narrative about, um, what and who is acceptable. I guess we're talking about hegemony, I suppose, aren't we? Um, yeah. And I mean, in, in, in this story, dancing, dancing with the devil, I was very aware of that dynamic and it is mm. all about the fact that, you know, Laura Miller has, until she meets Frank, she has nothing. And of course, mm by meeting Frank and falling in love with him, she has access to resources that she wouldn't otherwise have had. Mm. Um, But she still doesn't have very much. And, you know, the crucial thing is there are lots of people who are privately willing to, you know, you know, privately willing to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not not be bothered about her gender or sleep with her, who, you know, Mm. publicly will not really be associated with her anyway and certainly won't if she's outed Mm. um so yeah dealing with with that kind of pure spite and you know the kind of mindset i mean as the story goes on you'll see that um laura and frank come into contact with someone from the chronicle who Mm. is quite upfront about saying look you know this is going to make us money it's going to sell papers that's all i care about Mm. um and so you know he he doesn't even see it so much as a power thing. Mm. He sees it as, you know, just pure kind of expediency, which in some ways is even worse. It's not even a kind of principled anti-trans stance that he's taking. He's just sort of saying, well, the public are interested in this, therefore it's in the public interest, therefore there's no ethical problem with us doing this thing that is going to make us money at the expense of your lives and careers. And I suppose that's something that's very much true nowadays, that even if it's not going to necessarily make money for the newspaper, because newspapers don't even make money anymore, um, it's at least a way for a columnist to to either get a pitch accepted and for them to get paid or for just something for them to write about if they literally can't think of anything else and want people to click on it. It's... Yeah. It's uh, it's so it's even kind of worse. It's not even making money for newspapers. It's just um, retelling an ideology, isn't it? And it's uh, and people are getting paid along the way. The other thing here about about Laura's story as well is that the this kind of grim inevitability of um, it. It seems like she had a kind of that 
there's an inevitability about this day sometime coming mm. and about where where she might end up landing and like a worst case and best case scenarios and but hopefully that's you know that's something that's um that's shifted but it's it's quite you know, this is all kind of just I guess the difficulty is, and the difference between Laura's experience and a uh, trans person's experience nowadays, is that um, that there, there seems to be a... Um, because there is a, a greater acceptance among the general public, even though there isn't a greater acceptance among the press, that at least it feels like there isn't that grim inevitability of uh, you know the worst-case scenario. I suppose that is kind of one of the differences. Um, and there, there is a lot of... Uh, huge amount of cultural support for trans rights as well which is also kind of gratifying to see but we're recording this on a sunday and whenever i wake up on a sunday to do the doom scrolling of twitter which i should probably never do i think that's a a mistake there is the kind of constant um retweeting of who of some hateful thing that uh that someone said i was just wondering whether we might talk about you know what, what are good strategies for um for how we protect and enshrine and and further enhance trans rights like is you know is kind of retweet like hate retweeting and quote tweeting a picture of matthew paris or whoever it is in the observer is that you know useful should we should we as a culture look to do this kind of more affirmative work that that you're doing which is to to tell stories and to be positive and and proactive I think we need to do both. I mean, you know, if we ignore this awful stuff, like it's not going to go away hmm. um, and you can't let it go unopposed. But, you know, the whole point is to keep us pinned in the same place, hmm. fighting the same kind of, you know, battle that is completely unproductive for us forever. Hmm. So I think, you know, as more and more sort of trans people, non-binary people and like activists and creative people and writers and stuff come through, I think the important thing to do is to create a climate where trans people don't feel that they have to be fighting that particular battle and that it's unjustifiable to be doing anything else. Mm. I mean, I've often felt guilty about not responding Mm. to certain, you know, kind of like media incidents around trans as they arise. Uh, But I'm exhausted. I've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, one one of the ways culture war works in this country, and I don't think this is deliberate, I think this is sort of something they've stumbled upon Mm. by accident um, Mm. because they're not bright enough to deliberately be as stupid as they are. Mm-hmm. But one of the ways it works is to make the sort of terms of conversation so just mind-bogglingly dumb yeah. that anyone with like a modicum of self-respect just doesn't want to get involved. I mean, you mm. know, I am not going on Good Morning Britain to argue with Piers Morgan about Mr. Potato Head. Like, you know, I'm just yeah. not doing that. Um, and nobody should because it's pathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's that's one way that they get you. Mm. um you know and it's all very well and good to say they go low we go high mm. uh and sometimes if someone goes low you just need to like kick them in the head but um <laughs> <laughs> um metaphorically speaking of yeah, course we're not condoning um, yeah um <laughs> but you know sometimes you 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 do need to create things that will last and endure and you know yeah. i mean both the books i've published on trans subjects i'm hoping will do just that and yeah. you know it would be good you know, from now on, like a 16-year-old trans person, you know, if they want to reach for something on trans stuff, you know, they will have this book and they're going to have the wave of other kind of trans books that are coming out this year by, you know, Paris Lees and Sean Fay and uh, Mara Bergdorf and, and many others. Yeah. Um, 
and that can only be a good thing i think yeah i completely agree um and so if you are that 16 year old or would like to buy it for a 16 year old in your life in 16 year old in your life this variations juliet jakes on by influx press mention the publisher super important um let's also briefly cover some of the other work you do um juliet so you're the host of sweet two on two which is an excellent culture podcast i guess am i describing that correctly that's right yeah radio show on uh, residence 104.4 fm and uh, podcasts as well and yeah i mean that's um one of the reasons i sort of do that is to have a space where i can explore my other interests really like Mm. one of the things about being a trans writer and particularly trans journalist is you get typecast yeah Uh, and i really um quite early on in my journalistic career after i started doing the guardian series I got really fed up with only being asked to talk about trans things. Mm. You know, I write about football and music and literature and film and visual art and politics and history, um, as well as LGBT stuff. Uh, And Sweet 212, I mean, I have covered some LGBT issues on the show, Mm -hmm. um, but it's a nice space for me to cover, I don't know, my interests in, say, African literature or Greek contemporary art or um, British cultural policy or whatever i mean you've covered spanish culture and art of the spanish civil war or censorship and resistance in erdogan to turkey i could go on mm. cover quite a broad range of things on the show i was co-hosting it with a couple of other people for a while now it's just me um but yeah sweet 212 is is quite an important part of my sort of intellectual practice really i mean it's done yeah. on a shoestring yeah um but you know nonetheless we've had a great range of, of people on i mean jeremy corbyn came on uh brian eno has been on yeah um whole range of, of of people and it's you know really to kind of like plug the gaps in british cultural coverage which i think are pretty acute at this point yeah big time uh, it's such an interesting show um the you did a couple of shows about um hiv uh, activism so you did a show uh, about um act up and the uh the american um uh grassroots uh education and activism around hiv and then you did a show with hugh lemmy about it's a sin um which is really interesting as well uh, i did a review of it's a sin with uh, a psychosexual therapist on here silver Neves, and uh with, so and that's uh so juliet's conversation with hugh is a really good um complimentary kind of a conversation which talks more about the, the politics which i thought was uh yeah also agreed with i think hugh about the iffiness of some of the politics but mm. um so yeah uh listen to juliet's show uh sweet two on two it's excellent and um do you want people to follow you on twitter or anything or just do they have to use their own it would only lower your opinion you? of me i mean yeah um, <laughs> the intelligent stuff's in the books and the yeah. writing and, and the, the podcast and the cranky kind of you know <laughs> stuff about politics and you know sort of stupid comments about football are on twitter so i mean if you like that then i'm on twitter at zinoviev letter but you know just just a disclaimer like expect to be disappointed i always really like it so um thank i'm now proud to say that i've also had juliet jakes on my podcast thank you so much for coming on her book variations is out now on influx press do buy it thanks so much juliet thank you